0: Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a show that looks at the way technology, politics, and policy impacts the world around us. The tools we use, the way services are delivered, and how we talk about and set policy all shape our society. We'll gather around and have a chat about these things together and more. Before we get started, I do want to let you all know that we've started a Discord for the podcast. There will be a link with an invite down in the episode description. Do feel free to go check that out. It's a small community right now, but hoping to grow it. It's a great way to reach out to me and let me know things that you might want us to cover or to just hang out and talk about civic tech. Anyway, let's go ahead and start the show. Aiden, thank you so much for joining us here on Civic Tech Chat. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do?
1: Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I am a freelance technologist. Um, Been starting doing that this year, working with uh, nonprofit and government customers. Uh, So past seven years before that, uh, working as a federal employee at a couple digital service teams. So first 18F uh, and then a small team in the Census Bureau called XD and then back to TTS, uh, which is also in the General Services Administration. So that's been like my tech life for for the past while. And outside of that, I teach people to code and also I'm a modern dancer. I was going to go to the next question,
0: but with the end there, I kind of have to ask, what, what do you mean by modern dancer?
1: Yeah, so I have been dancing longer than I've been doing tech work um, and went to college for both and pursued both in parallel since and been able to yeah, keep it going as like a you know, thing I do outside of my day jobs and work with a few dance companies and perform pretty regularly. And yeah, we, you know, it's a, it's a nice balance to like, kind of have the very cognitive work and then the, you know, very physical work uh, to balance it out. Oh, that that, that is, uh, that is very
0: cool. I think it's a, it's a good thing to be able to have those kind of things to balance out like that. Totally. And Ian, what would you say is your personal Why? that thing that drives you to get out of bed each morning and do all those things.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have those, you know, kind of three areas um, that I do professionally. So, you know, I think we're just mostly talking about the tech one today. Uh, So within that, I really enjoy like making things work better. Um, That comes up as like tools and process and uh, automation and documentation, uh, things that, you know, end up being pain points for people, finding ways to like can kind of reduce that friction and all that. Um, so the civic tech interests broadly came from, you know, backgrounds and interests in engineering and teaching and also uh, open source and like transparency more broadly. Um, so that brought me from, you know, the tech companies into into civic tech back in like 2014. And yeah, the the, the work in government has been a bit thing that I've liked way more than I thought I would. Uh, starting out, the you know, kind of no one, no one's there to just like get rich or or that kind of thing. Like people are there because they want to be, and um, yeah, there's you know just so much room for improvement. So uh, you know, any any sort of impact you can make, either making the other staff's lives better or you know the end end users' lives better, is a huge win.
0: Are there any pieces of media, whether we're talking a podcast, a book, video, or some other such thing that you would recommend to the folks out there listening?
1: Yeah, so I am a huge podcast uh, addict. I have a whole spreadsheet of recommendations uh, that I send to people, so if you're interested, reach out. Um, One episode I really like that kind of touches on or is adjacent to like civic tech is... um, an episode of 99% Invisible, which is a show about kind of design and architecture. And they do a show on curb cuts. And so uh, for those who aren't familiar, those are like ramps that go like onto sidewalks from streets. Um, Those were not always around. That was like a past 50 years kind of thing. And that came about because of like advocacy of uh, wheelchair users, but ended up being really beneficial for people with strollers and grocery carts and bikes and had all these like positive spillover effects. Um, the development of those like led to the Americans with Disabilities Act and then the concept of universal design, um, which is like designing for the greatest number of people possible. And, you know, if you make things accessible, then it ends up being better for kind of every category of, of users. So uh, I really love you know that, that physical analogy to yeah, it's very applicable to like digital products as well.
0: As we hop to our kind of main topic area, uh, let's start off by defining a term we're probably going to use a fair number of times, or at least I have it written in this question sheet a bunch of times. Which is the, the term uh, DevSecOps. When you're using that phrase, what what are you describing?
1: Yeah, so it's really common in you know probably the enterprise IT world, uh, certainly in the government tech world. Um, Not something I came up with, but a lot of my work kind of falls in there. So it's a compound word of development, security, and operations. This was sort of the successor to the term DevOps, which, um, you know, was focusing on bringing those two practices and and types of teams together because historically, like, they'd operate sort of in isolation and the development team would throw their software over the wall to operations folks and you know, never kind of see it once it hits production. And, you know, so that compound word is literally like overlapping those two concepts and teams and kind of making it more of a blended thing. Um, DevSecOps just sticks security in there and very intentionally in the middle, I think. So this is, you know, ensuring that security tooling and processes and security expertise are all part of like building and operating software. And, you know, practically this can mean things like automating dependency upgrades or doing some sort of intrusion detection or other things like security focused code reviews right the more human part so you know anything that kind of glues those people with those different sets of experience together and you know tries to break down like the silos
0: folks looking at the title of this episode also probably noticed the mention of the phrase human-centered Often we discuss that when we're talking about things like inclusion of UX research techniques and processes for software to help ensure the stuff getting built is actually useful to the human beings that ultimately like want to use the thing. How does that fit in with this DevSecOps space?
1: Yeah. So focusing on that end user, which is you know often the public for government services, um, that focus is great, and you know I, I very much applaud that. Where I see a big gap is when you're talking about internal systems and internal policies and this kind of thing, uh, it often does not get the same kind of care and attention uh, that the external stuff does. And the external stuff doesn't even necessarily get as much attention as it should uh, get. So, you know, there's questions that you can ask to, you know, kind of start thinking this way, which is like, what's frustrating for the staff or, you know, whoever your support or your teammates, right? Whoever you're thinking about. Um, and then you know there's also things like what keeps them up at night, right? So you can have like, security experts uh, come in and do, you know, penetration tests and things like that. but your your teams also probably have like a decent sense of like where gaps are. And so you can ask them. So, you know, with these kinds of questions and then, you know, so subsequent planning and and fixing of them, like, you can address those frictions and fears and uh, through that improve productivity and morale and retention. So it's, it's all actually has like positive effects beyond just like addressing the issue. So listening to internal staff and making the right thing, the easy thing, I'm sure that's going to come up again today, but you know, all these things can be applied to kind of the external facing processes right your your forms that you present to users or processes you make them go through to get benefits or what have it what have you um then it can also apply to your technical systems and and platforms and things that you offer internally but it can also apply to stuff like hr or training or or anything else so it's just that mindset of like you know what does this person want to do what's preventing them from doing it
0: okay i think what I'm hearing from you there is effectively that like you know UX techniques like research techniques don't just have to apply to things you're you're building right like I think early in your answer you mentioned the idea of like well policy sometimes can like get in the way of of folks and so it's kind of I guess what you would suggest is when you're coming up with say an organizational policy the first step might be to start by asking those questions like conducting those interviews with folks it would affect am, am I kind of hearing that correctly
1: Absolutely and just teaching you know treating your Staff within your organization, or whoever your, you know, whoever your thing affects, like treating those people as users, like with respect and and understanding, like what they're trying to get out of it, or or what they would want changed, and that kind of thing, and and trying to address their needs.
0: In a talk, you go into some detail about ways you can utilize processes and tools to run projects. I gather a fair bit of it seems to fall along the theme of really trying to like, keep things somewhat simple. Is that a principle folks should be actively trying to follow as they go to manage these projects?
1: Yeah. Um, there's a quote by the uh mathematician uh Blaise Pascal that's uh I, I made this longer than usual because I have not had time to make it shorter. So I think it's awesome. Like attributed to Mark Twain and, and that kind of thing, but it's actually Pascal. Um it's not an easy thing to do, right? Like simplification is not, you know, usually the first way that something happens, right? You you have to you have to refine and refine in order to get there. Um, Technology choices, you know, architectures of systems, policies, and that kind of thing. Like any simplification you can find can save you pain later because it reduces the number of moving parts and, uh, you know, or or the clarity of what you're trying to express. If it's a policy, that kind of thing. Um, And that's important because like in technological systems, for example, Complexity leads to bugs, leads to you know edge cases that you didn't think of, uh, and those can sometimes be security vulnerabilities um, or other problems. And so, you know, the the more that you can remove moving parts is a is a good idea. Uh, it's easier said than done, of course. So, uh, a way that I suggest thinking about it, and this also, you know, sort of parallels with like what do you build versus what do you buy. Um, so it's kind of the same thinking, which is, like, what's your, what's your differentiator? What's your like, thing that you're trying to do that's unique here, as opposed to what's a co- commoditized need, right? What are what are problems that other organizations have had and solved, and like, can you just use whatever they're using, which will often be software as a service or or whatever, right? So so dif- differentiating between those two can go a long way to cutting out complexity and sort of offloading it to someone else.
0: You've also talked about how humans are inherently bad at making estimates, which uh, leads you to advocate for estimates that are less granular, uh, which might be somewhat counterintuitive for, for some folks as they like come across that. I think the guideline you mention is to say it's either days, weeks, or months, but without numbers for, you know, prepending any of those things. Can you talk a bit about the the advantages of, of going that way?
1: Yeah, um, I once went to a budgeting meeting and I brought a jar of jelly beans and I had people guess, like budgeting, people that like do budgeting professionally for, for information technology. I had them try and guess how many jelly beans were in this jar and the answers were all over the place. Um, and, you know, what I said to them is like, you can see everything that's here, right? There's jars in front of you, nothing's changing. There's no surprises. And still we were like way off in terms of how many are there. Like this is the same thing for software projects but for some reason we think that, no, this time if we like really, really concentrate we're gonna figure it out. And the truth is um, uh, there's a concept from, I believe, Pragmatic Programmer of sort of uh, out driving your headlights So, you know, you're trying to like guess at things that you, that are out of your line of sight and it's just Mm. not possible. So, you know, whether it's guessing in points, uh, in terms of like estimating tasks and that kind of thing, like people argue about what the points mean. If you are in teams that do exact estimates, like, you know, this number of days or this number of months, like this particular day will be done, those are going to be wrong. And that leads to tension. So. Days, weeks, or months—no numbers. Strikes a balance of being specific enough uh, to give a, like a rough order of magnitude. and Everyone kind of knows what you're talking about, but then also is vague enough to give a reasonable amount of wiggle room as you know things come up. So sometimes there's hard deadlines and there's nothing you can do. And then in that case, it's a matter of being ruthless about the priorities and you know determining what constitutes your minimal minimum viable product, and then you know what are nice to have.
0: Yeah, in, in some environments where this might apply, including government projects, there can kind of be a, a tension around this where it's like, oh, we want to be agile and adapt and learn to things. Uh, basically, uh, I, I think the headlights analogy maybe fits here. It's like, you know, adjust the things that you can see. But then also, as we we're talking about with estimates, they also want these like long term projections, those more exact estimates that I think you're pointing to as being uh, usually folly to, to, to try to do. Um, how should someone go about trying to balance these kind of competing concerns when you're working with a partner?
1: I think it's important to keep empathy, uh, you know, to, to remain empathetic, right? If there's a reason that your boss is asking for a lost long-term estimate, like, or, you know, if they are asking for that, like, there's probably a reason. Um, so what is that reason? Like, can you investigate that and actually figure out why? So as an example, like this came up um, in that that budgeting team that funds IT projects, and they were asking for projects to estimate multiple years out. Well, they weren't just doing that because it turns out that uh, the Office of Management Budget wanted financial projections five years out for the overall fund. And so to get projections for the overall fund, they have to give projections for all the things that they're funding. So it is entirely like reasonable that they are requiring that of projects because of things being imposed on them. But you then you know once you once you sort of understand root causes, uh, you can then find other ways to address, right? Is there a way to like meet that need and yet like structure things in a way that you know leads to good results? So for example, instead of you know everyone guessing what their what their project costs are going to be five years out, could we flip it on its head and say, Hey, we're going to give this project $1 million for three years and like do whatever you can for $1 million. Right. You, Mm. uh, this is like the agile principle of like, you know, fixed cost, flexible scope or fixed resources flexible, flexible scope, that kind of thing. So, you know, if you get two major features done this year versus three major features done, like, you know, that just depends on things that come up that you couldn't have anticipated and, yeah, those, you know, those long-term, medium-term goals you agree on, like those can be fixed and you could even like fix the costs, like as I just described, but you know, the the day-to-day and week-to-week can kind of be up to the team to prioritize.
0: It, it sounds a bit by flipping that you're kind of, instead of asking like how much time and energy will it take to do X, it's more like, well, how much time and energy are you willing to invest in X to see like where things end up? Is that kind of, is I guess, is That's that right. effectively the angle?
1: yeah because you don't know how long it's going to take to build x given feature so we can say all right we want five people working on this for a year and here are our goals let's see how far they get
0: in a talk focused on this same topic you make reference to a piece written by pete hodskin Uh, i probably mispronounced that and apologies to pete but it's called a hello production which advocates advocates for trying to deploy something useless as early as you possibly can. Um, why is that a, a good thing to advocate for?
1: Yeah, I like this article a lot. Um, a big driver for this approach is to avoid surprises. And that applies to both the team like trying to deliver whatever system or you know, again, that's going to apply to policy and that kind of thing. Um, both you know, sort of internally on the team working on it, but then also the people that it affects on the other side. So developing you a know, system or policy or whatever in isolation avoids interacting with all those people that might crop up along the way. So for a technical system, this might be the security team, this might be enterprise architecture people, this might be lawyers, this might be the end users, et cetera. The sooner that you get something out of production, the sooner you can like force those problems out of the woodwork that might appear later and you know reveals those blockers early. That's great because you can now have like start to address them sooner and do that in parallel with iterations of development, and hopefully like strike balance uh, and uh, you know kind of negotiate like an understanding with with the stakeholders of like okay what are the things that they want to know about well they want to know if there's a change to the encryption that you're using or they want to know if there's a change to you know the the types of personally identifiable information that comes up or whatever but you can know that by going through the process and you know once you have that agreement that allows you to like sort of get in the cadence of delivering uh more quickly as opposed to like a big bang release which is you know we've worked on this for months or years and now we're trying to finally ship to production and all this stuff you know that we didn't know about happens at the end it gets that out of the way sooner
0: it it sounds a bit like going through this process early is in a way almost kind of a like a ux research step in and of itself, right? You know, when you try to deploy something, you mentioned stakeholders, right? In a way, you're kind of figuring out who they even are by, uh, like, you know, who who ends up being concerned and wanting to show up to meetings when there's questions about how to deploy uh, different things. Uh, It sounds like that's probably pretty crucial to figuring out uh, how ultimately, like, your system should be set up at the end.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Um, So, you know, if you can just deploy a landing page, that's kind of the system equivalent, maybe, of... Um, like a UX researcher doing like a wireframe diagram or, or a, a paper prototype, right? It's like the simplest thing that someone can use that like demonstrates the thing. This is the, the equivalent for a sort of functional system of like, can we get, like if we're building a web app, like, can we get it up at a URL? Like, wh- what does that take, right? It's, it's, it's the, that's uh, yeah, the through line. It's also been referred to as like a walking skeleton. What's the yeah? What's like the simplest thing that demonstrates like we've m- developed some code, even if it is just a landing page, and like deployed it, and that thing is you know operational and has security things in place and whatever.
0: Oh, I like your mention of it being like a like a wireframe, like that uh, comparison or analogy, because I think that's something that uh, a lot of partners can kind of like grok and get their heads around. Like it's something you can usually see. But saying it's like that, but for these systems, maybe that's like an effective way to to describe it to folks that are like less familiar, say, with the deployment process.
1: Yeah, I, I had not really put that together before this conversation, but yeah, yeah,
0: I hope so. Uh, folks, folks listening might be aware it can be rather difficult to try to prioritize uh, work in the DevSecOps space, especially if you have to weigh it against other concerns whether you're talking about like, you know, energy being put into like different features and things or like basically different competing things that are going on on a project. Uh, What
1: approaches have you found effective in tackling that kind of problem? For this, my mother would say like, take my advice. I'm not using it. Uh, So it's something I want to get better at, but an approach that uh, I've used and I've seen others use that seems to be really effective is uh, kind of playing amateur psychologist and figuring out what all those stakeholders motivations are because then you can speak to those motivations or, you know, use that to influence you know, your, your decision-making and avoid surprises and also, uh, you know, get people on your side. So that might happen through, you know, finding their, what their hopes are, what their frustrations are, what their fears are. Right. And this could be bosses, CIOs, like you know, legislative uh People, you know, wh- whoever might like impact the direction of the project. So if you can address those things, right, uh, then you're probably not going to have an issue getting prioritized because they want you to succeed and they, you know, this is good for them too. So, you know, earlier I mentioned like asking team members about things that annoy them or keep them up at night. The The way I did this with a couple clients is this exercise where we list out their uh hopes and frustration and fears and i'd sort of get that through like doing one-on-one uh interviews but you can do it in a group uh as well so we sort of get those all up and you know combine them and and that kind of thing and then map them to underlying problems so okay the the thing that keeps me up at night is uh you know what if our site goes down and there's no one to uh, you know, no one knows about it or something. Well, all right, the underlying problem is that we don't have proper monitoring in place. So we don't have a good like, you know, fallback uh, you know, for system downtime and that kind of thing. All right, then we can come up with solutions and that, that in a way is easier once you identify the underlying problem. So with those you can, the team can prioritize and come up with like, okay, what are the actual like problems we wanna solve not just prioritizing the solutions. And, you know, if everyone agrees on that, then you, you have your list and and that, you know, you prioritize the things at the top and you might need to choose whether, you know, fixing this potential security risk is more important than, than a feature, but, you know, that's how priorities work. You have to deprioritize some things in order to prioritize others. And that's just something you have to accept.
0: And having those priority conversations, I imagine can come into scenarios where there's a lot of noise around it. Um, You know, sometimes there are the even potential like stakeholders that are prescriptive in their in their nature. I think I think of what that phrase is like, um, authority to operate kinds of requirements or, you know, processes and things that are uh, can be a bit difficult to maneuver around. Um, But we've also in this conversation talked about this, you know, wish to try to remain human centered, and like how we go about uh, designing these systems, uh, implementing po- or designing implementing policy, how can a team either kind of keep focus or return focus in these conversations to that like centering principle of you know trying to be human centered and also like ma- maintaining things with these stakeholders?
1: Yeah, so there's a few ways to answer that. I think um, one is to remember that the people involved in maybe Byzantine processes, uh, they're people too. And you know maybe they're running it that way because they feel pressure to do so, um, and so you know it kind of goes both ways. So that com- that goes back to you know what I was talking about of like what are people's hopes and frustrations and fears and pressures. You know like what, why are things the way they are? Um, in order to you know address them, I'm going to go back to like user research and usability tests. Um, I, you know, was on teams where even as an engineer, I was like kind of brought in and uh assisting like running these with you know UX professionals. And you just learn so much um watching people like try and struggle with the thing you built or the thing you're you're planning to build, that kind of thing. Um yeah, th- those practices uh are thankfully becoming a lot more common um in government and I'm, I'm sure beyond government with you know external facing offerings. So, you know, sort of public facing products, but the same can be applied to internal systems and policies and processes. Um, You know, this can be either like user research, which is often like done kind of beforehand, Uh, the usability testing, which is, you know, as you're building the thing and uh, retrospectives, I think are really helpful even just within the team to kind of get people to air their pains and, and, frustrations and that kind of thing and kind of help everyone work better together because you're not going to get anything done if if people are fighting so you know all those things can help you reflect on like what your medium and long-term goals should be like what are the user stories we're trying to address right what are like the top line like problems and everything else like folds in under those um and then you know looking at okay, our, our tasks that we see on our project board or whatever, like, are those actually moving us towards those goals? If not, maybe we shouldn't do them. Um, So last thing I'll say about it is, uh, you know, in terms of treating everyone as a human, like hammering on people to like, you know, this has to be like directly related to this user. Otherwise like it's a complete waste of time. That's not, that's not a good way to approach things either. So, there's actually a balance and I I think it's healthy to give staff like time to work on things they want to work on, just something they're excited about even if it doesn't like meet the, you know, threshold of like, is this moving us closer to our like handful of top line goals. So this can be hackathons or 20% time, bug smash days, like however you wanna do it, giving them time to learn something new, experiment, you know, fix an annoyance, that kind of thing. It can be a nice just relief.
0: That last bit you mentioned there, I, uh, I think something I'm hearing there is effectively like you can kind of almost go too far on the, like the spectrum to a point where like you're too rigorous in the other direction, which sounds like maybe it creates some of the same sorts of stresses that the other end of the spectrum might've created uh, through that rigor. Is that,
1: is that, is that so? I think that's right. Um, it's important to remember that like people are only going to do their best work if they're happy. And a way that like a lot of people are going to kind of you know let off steam or you maybe get to work with someone they don't normally get to work with or you know scratch an itch, like that kind of thing, is to, is to like give them a little bit of room to explore or to you know have some self-determination. So that's another way of thinking about it is okay, instead of like the stakeholders are dictating everything to us. And we just have to do the the things that have been prioritized. I actually get some agency, and I get to pick something I want to work on. Um, and that that could just go a long way to to building up people's you know kind of trust in each other and like excitement about what they're doing and that kind of thing.
0: In some of your work, you you talk about this idea of trying to create a golden path that is kind of preferred for folks to use, but not something that's you know maybe explicitly required. Uh, you describe an idea that uh, probably seems familiar to folks who enjoyed their uh, game theory classes. I know when I was reading this part of your work, I was having flashbacks to grad school about like the little the little charts and trying to figure out, you know, uh, best perceived payout. But ultimately, like the idea is you, you want to make the desired behavior easier and more rewarding than the alternative thing that maybe you don't want them to do as much. Uh, what advice would you give folks that are trying to emulate the, this model that you're, you've
1: described? Yeah, maybe I need to take a game theory class. Uh, I've not done that, but um, th- the way I think about it is that you know people are going to, th- there's a gravity to whatever someone's trying to get done and th- they're gonna find a, whatever they need to do that. Um, you as maybe a person offering a centralized platform, right, is, is sort of the classic example, like running like the enterprise level tools. You want it to be the thing you're offering, but that's not always going to be the case. People, you know, go off and use uh, like shadow IT, right? Which means kind of the things that aren't approved and uh, you know aren't desirable to the people running the centralized things. So, if you want to make your product desirable, I'd say that's half the battle. Actually, <laughs> like just getting people past the well, we said you are supposed to use it, so. You have to use it at the end if, if you can get past that to you know okay how do we actually make this like easy if not actually a pleasure to use just that mindset goes a huge <laughs> a huge amount of the way but um you know so the, the remaining bit of actually getting it there is i think treating it like a product and a product that like needs to win customers rather than having a sort of captive audience so there's a great uh, blog post by Sean Boots uh, called uh, if you want enterprise services to be good make them optional and mm-hmm. you know it, it, it's it's a really nice way of thinking about it of you know what what would it take to make this something that the target audience would would choose over alternatives versus you know being forced because forcing someone to use something is a losing battle so you know you can You can look at look at the alternatives look what else people are doing and and figure out like okay if there are people that are choosing not to use it or being resistant like why are they choosing to resist it um can we can we go beyond just our ability to kind of lay down a rule of you know this is our enterprise policy and and entice them so like someone might not be using it because they're not aware of it they might have experience in whatever tool they're using right now, and they would have to, you know, do a bunch of learning in order to move over. There could be actual transition costs of, you know, okay, we have to migrate all this data, and you know, that's a pain. Um, and they could also, you know, have tried what you're using and not liked it. And so, you know, can you address those issues? Um, to do all these things, it really, really helps to have your internal systems leverage people with like product and design and content experience, right? Like make the documentation good, make the, make it visually appealing, right. As opposed to kind of the crappy internal software that we've all seen. And yeah, like how can you make it like alleviate their pain points so that like they're on your side, they're excited to, to use this thing and give feedback and all of that.
0: I I think I'm hearing in your answer there that, a lot of the core of like figuring out this golden path idea comes back to like doing that effect, like UX research that we've been talking about kind of throughout here. It kind of applies also just to like even trying to convince folks to use like the preferred set of tooling. Is that, is that, is that so?
1: Absolutely. I've gotten a ton out of working with uh, UX people and got just the idea that, you know, you are, you're trying to get something done. Um, you meaning like your user in this case is, is trying to get something done. What are their options? Why are they choosing one versus another? What's you know, what do they wish they were able to do? What is like prevent preventing them um, from being able to do it? That kind of thing. It, it's applicable in so many places and it really is you know so much about incentives and resources and there's equity elements in there as well. Yeah, it, it, the the principles apply all over the place once you like start to learn about that. But I just love that.
0: If uh if an organization's kind of found itself maybe um a bit into where shadow like the shadow IT, like as the phrase you used, is kind of already happening. You know, folks are already kind of finding ways to to do the task that maybe aren't preferred by the organization or that they see as maybe inherently more risky. Um, are there are there ways that folks should be, attempt to kind of try to act to pull that back? Does it, is it basically the same, like you just go back and start doing that research at that time? Or are there other things you might suggest folks do if it's like a little further along?
1: I think understanding what what people are using for what, right? So can you sort of bucket the tools that people are using? And like, ask yourselves as the, you know, maybe enterprise IT people, like, do we actually care like, like, how big of a deal is it that this team is using, you know, project management tool X, and this team is using project man- management tool Y? Do we actually care? Well, okay, maybe that doesn't matter so much, but, like, we do want to make sure people are using, like, a, a safe email system. And so, like, let's make sure that everyone's using the right email system. And maybe instead of focusing on the tools, like, you know, okay, why do we want everyone on a on the same tool. Well, we need to ensure that like data is being like shared and protected uh, safely. Okay, can we kind of teach people just enough about that and that could be applicable to any of the tools and would that go like most of the way? Maybe, you know, can we if we if we you know have a principle of like we don't put sensitive information in our project management tool, then doesn't matter what project management tool they're using. Because you know, if it gets hacked or something, like it's not the end of the world. So uh, there, there's, yeah, I, I think it's useful for the centralized folks to sort of question, like, well, what do we actually care about, and and can we prioritize? Um, because trying to like set up walls around like what people can't do is is going to make people upset with you. And so, let's prioritize what's going to make the biggest impact in terms of you know, cost savings or, or security or that kind of thing, focus on those and you know, maybe decide where we're okay with people doing things that are outside of, you know, kind of the centralized offerings and uh, just make sure that they understand the principles of like, what is it that we're concerned about? And can they incorporate that into their day to day?
0: Aiden, thank you so much for joining us here on civic tech chat. I have no doubt folks are going to find some nuggets of wisdom to take into their day and learn from as they listen.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is fun.
0: You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at Civic Tech Chat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.